we like being changed. People don't like what they like being changed. It's not something that those people are that way. Or those people over there that way. Or those people over there that way. Or those people way over that way. Everybody's like that. We don't like what we like being changed. Uh, doctor said to the patient, uh, Mr., you are in terrible shape. Uh, you've got to stop working, at least as hard as you are. You need to tell your wife she needs to cook you better meals and you need to tell her that you're going to be making a budget for her and she has to stick to it so you don't have the stress of the money issue on you. You need to tell her that she has to keep the kids off your back so that you can go home and completely relax. And unless there are some changes like these, mister, you'll be dead within a month. And he said, well, Doc, uh, this would really uh, sound more official and, and more certain if it come from you. Could you call my wife and give her those instructions? So uh, he leaves the uh, doctor's office and goes home. When he gets home, he finds his wife crying almost uncontrollably. And he says, what's wrong? What's wrong? I talked to the doctor. You've only got 30 days to live. (laughs) We don't like what we like to be changed. And we are all like that. Don't change my life suddenly and tell me how it's going to be different. The U.S. Railroad Service places between the rails four foot and eight and one half inches. That's the distance between the rails. Four foot, eight and one half inches. Why is that? The reason that it's that way is because England built our railroads. All of the people that actually began the construction and the engineers all came from England. And that's how wide it is between the two rails in England. Well, why was it four foot, eight and one half inches between the rails in England? Because in England, the pre-railroad tramways were four foot, eight and one half inches. Why were the tramways four foot, eight and one half inches? Because that was the wagon standard between the tires, the wheels of the old wagons. They were four foot, eight and one half inches. Well, why were the wagons four foot, eight and one half inches? It's because all the old road wheel ruts fit four foot, eight and one half inches. So the wagons would roll in the ruts that were there in the roads. Well, why were all the rutted roads four foot, eight and one half inches? Because Rome built the roads for their war chariots and their war chariots had ground into the pavement at four foot, eight and one half inches. Well, why were the war chariots four foot, eight and one half inches? And the reason is that's the width to accommodate the rear end of two war horses in Rome. Now you know why the rails on the trains are four foot, eight and one half. We don't like change. 
Change is a tough one to accept. Is that the best distance? Probably not. Will it ever be changed? It'll come slow. It's been a while, all the way back to Rome. Uh, The change is so hard that uh, President Jackson, back in January the 31st, 1829, received this letter from a governor, Martin Van Buren, who I believe later became president. Martin Van Buren was then the governor of the New York State. Here's what he wrote. As you know, or as you may know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles an hour by engines, which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fires to crops, scaring the livestock and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended people that they should travel at such breakneck speeds. Change is a hard one. The duty of Christ's preeminence is demonstrated in change. It is in changing what we like to do, and therefore it is opposed because people don't like what they like to do to be changed. Face the world you live in. That's why Christianity is resisted. So we want to look at five of the duties to Christ's preeminence demonstrated. Next slide, please. Whoever's in control. Anybody in control? Nobody's in. Oh, that's it. That's the whole lesson right there. We can go home now. Um, The duty to Christ's preeminence is demonstrated first and foremost in purity. We'll just read through this. We'll point out just a couple of things. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seating at the right hand of God. So if you've been baptized, basically, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Right? Uh, For you died. That's why we baptized you. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you're already there. That's what that represents. You've already attained to eternal life. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That means that when He comes back, we'll see you there because you're already there. Verse 5, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. That doesn't mean to kill yourself, literally, but it does mean to mortify these things that you should have already put aside. Fornication, that is messing around with somebody that you're not married to. Uncleanness. That's any kind of vile thing, including speech or behavior. Passion, uh, that is when you let your passions run away with you and do any kind of sin you wish. Evil desires, just desiring to do evil. You actually have to do evil for it to be wrong. And covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. Wanting more and more, just wanting more. Greed is actually idolatry. You don't actually have to have everything. You can be poor and be covetous. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That's why the Lord's, one of the reasons the Lord's coming back. Verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. We all used to live that way. Hopefully most of us don't live that way, especially the Sunday night crowd. Verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger. So here, these are more attitudinal sins. 
anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Talked about that a few weeks ago. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Who would think that Christians would lie to each other? Since you have put off all uh, the old man with his deeds, since that was what you were supposed to have done when you were baptized. Verse 10, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. When did you put on that new man? When you rose up out of the watery grave of baptism. That was the new life that you put on. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, uh, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the way it's supposed to be. So we're supposed to... Uh, our duty to Christ's preeminence is demonstrated when we behave in purity. We lift Christ up. That's what you're doing. The second thing is the duty to Christ's preeminence is demonstrated in our fellowship. Look at verses 12 through 17 if you have your Bibles open on your lap. Verse 12. Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. What's he talking about? Among ourselves. Verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. You really ought to just let it go and not take it to them. But if you do, you need to still find a way to forgive your brother or your sister. Verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. If we're going to be united as a fellowship, we have to love each other. Not some of each other. We're supposed to love every single person in the room. Amen. Verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That means if you really are a child of God, you should be at peace with all your brethren. Amen. Uh, to which also you are called in one body and be thankful. Not two bodies, not 15 bodies, but one body. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. We don't just sing because we sing to the Lord. We sing because we're in a fellowship. We sing in harmony. We sing together because we're encouraging and teaching each other. Verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So fundamentally, we need to understand that one of the ways that we show the preeminence of Christ is how we treat each other in our fellowship. If you don't treat each other in a superior way, you are not showing the preeminence of Christ in your life. Number three. The duty to Christ's preeminence is demonstrated in relationships. Now, he goes into a plethora of various relationships that you and I are in. And in those relationships, Christ ought to be seen as the most important thing in all of our relationships. And look how he divides it up. Verse 18, wives, submit uh, to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I'm sorry, that's not in vogue. and, And I don't particularly care if women like to hear it or not. I don't. Just like I don't particularly care if men like to hear the next thing. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. I don't care if you like that or not, gentlemen. If you got a chip on your shoulder about your wife because you can't understand her thinking, get over it. Behave yourself in our relation. Why? Because when you don't do these things, wives don't submit to their husbands and husbands don't love their wives and don't act less than bitter. (laughs) 
What they do is they make Christ not look like he's preeminent. That he's not the great savior that he is. That's what you're doing. You're making him out to just be another philosophy. Look at verse 20. Children. Oh, you mean kids are involved in there? Kids, listen up. I'm talking directly to you. I don't care what your age is if you can understand me. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing the Lord. What if I don't agree with them? Get over it. Obey your parents anyway. Unless they're asking you to do something that's absolutely vile, get over it. Do what your parents say. Amen? Amen walls. Uh, verse 21. Fathers. Now we're talking to daddies. All you daddies out there. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does that mean? Don't be so hard on them that they don't ever want to go to church. They don't ever want to go to school. They don't want to ever do anything because it doesn't make any difference. Daddy don't think I did it right anyway. Get over that, gentlemen. Don't be that hard on your kids. Amen? Now, it's interesting they didn't tell mamas. So I don't know if mamas can get away with that or not. But daddies can't. Verse 22. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So if you serve anybody, in this case, that's a pretty hard thing to say to a bond servant, but it applies to anybody in service to anybody else. And that is, if you go to work, you don't just work when the boss is around. Amen? You work when they're not around just as much as when they are around. And those guys who increase the amount of work when the boss shows up, usually not all that good of an employee anyway. Verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the, that's not hardly, that's heartily as to the Lord and not to men. You should always do it for the Lord. Verse 25, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Whether you know it or not, in all of your relationships, you are actually serving the Lord Christ. How are you serving the Lord Christ? Because he personally is not directly benefiting from your service, except in this way. When you serve these other people that way, you elevate the way Jesus is seen. You show him as the preeminent Savior that he is. Look at verse 25. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Uh, Verse 1 of the next chapter. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So if you are a boss, treat everybody right. So, And if you don't, you again make Jesus look like he is not preeminent in your life. Next lesson. It's verse, uh, verse, this is number four. It's in verses two through six. And it's about the duty to Christ's preeminence is demonstrated in our witness. It begins, this is Paul in his witness talking in verse two. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant or watchful in it with thanksgiving. Particularly, he's asking for himself. Verse three, meanwhile, praying also for us. What is he asking them to pray for him? That God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in change. Now, if you're in a prison cell, I would say you have limited opportunities to do evangelism. You're not going to be door knocking this, are you? Unless it's cell door knocking. I'm thinking you're probably not back in those days it wasn't like that and if you've been to rome and you've seen prisons like the one he stayed in the maritime prison 
There wasn't any of that going from one cell to the other. That didn't happen. Verse 4. That I make make it manifest as I ought to speak. So I need an opportunity, Lord. You need to send somebody my way. That's what he's asking for. Give me an opportunity or get me out of here. One of the two. Get me out of here or send somebody to me. Maybe a cellmate. He'd be stuck to me and I'd preach to him day and night until he became a child of God. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. So be careful how you behave toward non-Christians. It's critical. Why? Redeeming the time. Why? Because we don't have that long and we don't have any guarantees and that person needs to know. Verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace. Don't be ugly. Be gracious. Seasoned with salt. But you need to be truthful. That you may know how you ought to answer each one. Be careful how you answer people. They're going to ask us all kinds of questions. They're going to always find fault with us because people don't like to change what they like to do. Okay? Now, the duty to Christ's preeminence is not only demonstrated in our witness, but it's, in other words, if you don't witness for the Lord, you make Christ look like just anybody else. But if you believe Jesus Christ is preeminent, then you speak about him and you make him preeminent. And so the last point is the duty to Christ's preeminence is demonstrated in service. And look at the different ways that it's talked about, verses 7 through 18 of chapter 4. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. So he's a servant, will tell you all the news about me. Verse 8. I am sending him to you for this very purpose. I want you to know all about me. I'm sending him, but he's a servant. He's willing to go. That he may know your circumstance. I want to know what's going on with you and comfort your hearts too. Verse 9, with Onesimus, we'll hear about him in another book, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. And they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, Greet you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Well, Mark, the gospel of Mark. Uh, about whom you received instruction. If he comes, you welcome him. Verse 11. And Jesus, now this is not Jesus Christ. Jesus was apparently a relatively common name. Of course, it wasn't pronounced like that, but that was a common name. Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So that's uh, Jewish guys who are really faithful. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Service, service, service. He is bragging on these men's service. Verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Uh, Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician. Boy, this is a who's who, isn't it? Uh, Book of Luke. And Demas greets you. So that's the guy who messes up later. Verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Verse 16, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I don't know why that needs to be uh, said to him. 
Maybe he was sloughing off. Verse 18. This salutation by my own hand. Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Even now, Paul, remember my chains. Service, service, service. Listen to that list of people. And all the dangers, all the difficulties they'd gone through. How much they were willing to sacrifice. It's a great who's who list of people that were great in service. Why is that important to mention? Because we need to see that our service, going on mission works as we're doing in the summertime, going and doing things at a nursing home, wherever you offer service, you are elevating Christ. People see you as Christ representatives and Christ goes up in their mind. You give Christ preeminence by being involved in works of service, whether in sharing the gospel or simply serving fellow men. So that's the lesson. Uh, The duty to Christ's preeminence is demonstrated when we live in purity, when we are in fellowship with each other in appropriate ways, when we are in the appropriate relationships, and when we witness for Him, and when we are in service for Him. Now, Warren Wearsby, written a whole bunch of books, some of you probably heard of him before, uh, he said one day a boy came to his door selling newspapers. He's a young boy, and he's quite persuasive. Here's what he said to sell his newspapers. He said, it only costs a quarter, Mr. Wearsby, and the best thing about it is that this newspaper only prints good news. Yeah, right. Well, that would be great if you could find a newspaper like that, wouldn't it? The gospel is the good news of Christ. It's funny that the world changed it, though. Have you ever noticed that? Why did we get the word world word gospel? Since it means good news, why didn't they translate it? You ever ask that question? You think we were trying to hide something? What were they hiding? It's kind of like baptism, right? Why don't we have the word baptism? Why don't we have the word immersion? You ever ask these questions? Why don't we have the word gospel? So some of these words are to hide things that people didn't want to admit. Because back in those days... They were actually struggling with the idea that the gospel was good news. It's good news, but every good news is not good news unless there's already some bad news. I mean, you don't really need good news. If everything's going great, another thing going great isn't all that great. So there must have been some bad news. And so what it suggests is the bad news becomes good news if there's radical change. Back to the whole point of this lesson, and that is change. See, if you truly believe in the preeminence of Christ, it will change you. If it hasn't, you don't believe in the preeminence of Christ. If you truly believe in the preeminence of Christ, that He is who we've just looked at, and He is the Son of God, and He is the Savior of the world, it has to change you. It will change what we like to do, And we don't like what we like to do to be changed. But it will do it anyway. You know, and that's a tough thing. On June the 4th, 1783. June the 4th, 1783. I remember it well, don't you? There, it was uh, in France. They made a uh, canvas balloon and built a fire under it. It was the first rise of a hot air balloon 
It went into the air 6,000 feet by estimates. When it came down a few miles away, and that was a victory. Never been anything like that before. Flight like that. When it came down a few miles away, it was attacked by farmers with pitchforks and torn all to pieces as an instrument of the devil. Change is hard. We don't receive it well. We like the same because we think the same is right or it wouldn't be the same. So even when it's sin in our life, we're kind of like that. We don't receive change very well. How does the truth of the gospel of the preeminence of Christ change us? I like what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. He gave this illustration. You ever seen a pile driver? And when people don't use pile drivers as much as they used to, have you ever seen a pile driver at work? Big heavy weights lifted in the air and drop. Boom. Right? Seen that? And it drives the pile down in the ground. Usually a post or something like that. Drives it down in the ground. And lifts it again. Boom. Boom. Now, he said, and this is an interesting thought. He said, the higher you pull the weight up, the more powerful it drives in the pile. Ladies and gentlemen, the higher you lift Jesus, the more powerful the message of Jesus will be. Lifted high, high, so it drives it in. The higher you lift Jesus, the more powerful. Paul Harvey wrote about his baptism. A lot of you probably don't think Paul Harvey was baptized correctly, but you listen to this for a minute. This is what he wrote. The preacher had said there was nothing magic in the water. I agree with that, don't you? I don't think there's it. Except that it make you cold after a while. I found out that this morning. The preacher said there was nothing magic in the water, yet I descended into its depths and rose again, and I knew something life-changing had happened, a cleansing inside and out. No longer did there seem to be two uncertain, contradictory Paul Harveys, just one immensely happy one. I felt a fulfilling surge of the Holy Spirit, and afterward I cried like a baby. The change this simple act has made in my life is so immense as to be indescribable. Change. It's not easy, but if you lift him up high enough, when it finally comes, it's indescribable and radical. A, a former drunk who is a Christian, trying to be one, was asked if he really believed that Jesus turned water into wine. And his response was, yes, of course, because he changed me. He changed me. If you too grasp the preeminence of Christ and you surrender your will to his and you agree to confess him, and to be baptized, and you in your heart have lifted him up as your Savior, the change will be powerful. You will never be the same. And all who know him will see, all who know that person that's baptized will see that at least in your life, Christ Jesus is preeminent.
That's all we can do. Amen? If you haven't done that, we want to give you the opportunity to do it tonight. But lest none of us leave here without realizing I've got to lift him up every day in every way so that his message will make a bigger impact. If you need to come, come while we stand and while we sing. I know the mighty Redeemer.